there is a view that, that wokeism, that radical progressivism, liberal authoritarianism, whatever you want to call it, whatever your chosen name, this is not a political ideology in a classic sense, right? This displays all the hallmarks of a, of a new religion. It punishes outsiders, critics, uh, non-conformists who are seen to violate the new sacred values of equality and diversity and anti-racism. It, it, it has its own version of original sin, right? White privilege, white guilt. Uh, these are all, you know, modern incarnations of that. It is profoundly utopian, right? It, it, it sort of wants to build this new utopia, and and it and it is um, based on claims that are deeply hostile uh, towards objective empirical evidence. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike, and joining me once again is my good friend, Mr. Jonathan Astro. John, happy New Year! It's 2023. How's it going? Uh, good, Ricky. Um, yeah, just um, you know, I've, I've got nothing to say. Um, just I want to. I want to. Apart from, I want. I want a year of great guests. You know, good uh, discussion, and hopefully, you know, we won't get cancelled. So yes, that's uh, it's always a hope of ours. Now, uh, are you a stat man? Do you like stats? Can I say if there are people who are interested in stats um, and numbers and that, I'm more of a feelings guy. Oh yeah. So I feel it in my tum tum, and I just go. That sound feels about right. Ah, oh, a, bit, a bit like a, a, a wokest. <laughs> yes, that's right. A mystic, <laughs> a mystical not wokest. Facts, yeah. Yes, yes. I, so that's I'm more like that. But yeah. So is that good or? Uh, I don't know. But a man who's not all about just gut feeling is Matthew Goodwin, who we have on the show today. And he's just a brilliant stat man in terms of political science, and uh, he's here to run us through everything UK politics. Well, and I look, I have to say, before we had a podcast, I would listen to this man and just be like, this guy is so intelligent, and uh, you know, I'm embarrassed for myself, really, and and I, ca- I cannot believe we are actually going to talk to him. To be honest with you. Yes, well, I'm I'm embarrassed to learn he's younger than us too. So that's always an extra punch in the guts, you know. It is. It's it's a bit of pill, to yeah. be frank, mm. but we will swallow it. Let's swallow it now. Okay. <laughs> Matthew Goodwin is a British academic and professor of politics in the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Kent. He's the author of several books, including Revolt on the Right, UKIP, Brexit, National Populism, This England, and soon to be hot off the press, 2023's Values, Voice and Virtue. Matthew is a commissioner of the Social Mobility Commission and also publishes a very successful and influential substack. Matthew Goodwin, welcome to The New Flesh. Good to be with you. Now, in, in the last 10 years, Australia has had six prime ministers. The UK now has had five prime ministers in the same period, including the 50-day reign of Liz Truss. Uh, was this born of some kind of jealousy about our fair colony down here in Australia? Well, it's a great, great question. Uh, I think one of the the interesting aspects globally, actually, is is the extent to which politics, you know, seemingly everywhere, is becoming more volatile. It's becoming more unpredictable, a bit more chaotic. Um, in my world of political science, we often refer to this as as a new era of uh, of volatility that that people are of moving around like never before, voting for one party and then another party at, at different elections. So what we're seeing in Britain and Australia is 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 not just unique to us, it is a global phenomenon. 
So following on from that, are, are we indeed living through an exceptionally tumultuous era, but politically and socially, or is this kind of a fallacy? I, I'm thinking about the long reign of Thatcher, for instance, which was the same as our longest serving prime minister uh, in recent times, John Howard. Even David Cameron's six years seems astounding looking back. Are, are, we, uh, are these remarkable times? I think they're certainly significant times. I think if you look across uh, all Western democracies, there are a few things that seem to be happening in in most, if not all of them. Uh, One is the established mainstream left and right has been um, increasingly struggling to retain support at elections. I think secondly, we've seen the rise of new challenger parties on both the left and the right, as well as green parties that have been more successful uh, increasingly over the last 20 years or so. We've also seen the rise of new issues in politics, cultural questions, identity questions, which have become just as important as the old economic questions over redistribution, um, wealth and income. Uh, And we've also seen uh, the rise of uh, new generations, millennials and Zoomers, who, as I'm sure we'll come to talk about, have very different values, have very different uh, beliefs from generations uh, that that preceded them. Uh, and so when you put all of these things together, um, you know, whether you look at, for example, um, the rise of Georgia Maloney in Italy, the rise, a record number of independence in America, the, the rise of populism in Britain, the continued support for outsiders across much of Europe. Um, I think what we are witnessing um, at broad level is the way in which democracies are actually entering into an entirely new era in their history. The first century or so of democracy was basically characterized by the left-right divide over redistribution and wealth. Increasingly, democracies are now moving into this new era where culture and identity have become just as important as economics, and that is really upending our politics along the way. What kind of damage has this revolving door period done to the Tories? Uh, What do the people say? What, What are your polls telling you? Yeah, so I think if you look at British politics right now, which is which is really what 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 my new book is about, um, we are essentially going through a political realignment. Uh, ever since the Brexit referendum in 2016, really, actually, ever since the rise of populism before it, the the individuals like Nigel Farage, the UK Independence Party, then the Brexit Party. And then, of course, Boris Johnson, uh, who wins this emphatic victory in 2019, including winning lots of of blue collar voters uh, who who used to vote for the Labour Party. I view all of these things as being symptomatic of this deeper realignment uh, that is sweeping through not just Britain, but but many other Western democracies. And, And the question that I'm trying to grapple with here is what is driving this realignment? Why now? Why is this happening? Why are workers, non-graduates, pensioners, why have they been moving left? And why have women, uh, graduates, uh, middle-class professionals and young Zoomers been moving right? Uh, And I think the answer to that question really uh, is the way in which our politics has been upended by three new drivers, that we have a large number of voters who no longer feel their values are respected in the political system. We have a large number of voters who feel that they simply do not have a voice, not only in politics, but across 
institutions, uh, in culture, in media, in creative industries, in the universities. And thirdly, we have many of the same voters now really picking up on the fact that they are not treated with the same degree of dignity, uh, respect, and are not given the same amount of social status as other groups in society. And that has, has partly fed into this. So when you put all of this together, what we've seen in Britain, what we can see in America, what we can see in France, are large numbers of voters who are really basically saying, my values, my voice, and my sense of virtue are no longer really reflected in today's politics. And that's why they've been rebelling against the mainstream. So with all that in mind, why can't anyone in a leadership, leadership position seem to harness and control this wave of, pop, of populist backlash, if you will, uh, long term? So on paper, it seems so obvious. Someone, anyone needs to plant their feet and speak plainly about the issues that drove people to vote for Brexit, for instance, I would say. But we see time and again leaders unwilling to say or do what needs to be done about these cultural issues. Johnson, uh, long term that is, Johnson, May, Truss, Truss and now Sunak. Who are these people beholden to is the question I'm, I'm wondering why, as to why they can't uh, just say what seems so obvious in, in your work. And more broadly, is it possible for a leader to ride this thing like a, like a sandworm in June, if you'll forgive the reference? Well, Boris Johnson was perhaps the one frontline politician who did ride that wave in 2019 at our last election, who managed to tap into this new electorate by promising to get Brexit done, uh, by promising to level up the regions of the country that had been left behind by globalization, and then by promising to reform immigration. The problem that happened or, or that unfolded after that election, uh, however, is that Johnson rapidly turned out not to be the conservative that he had promised uh, voters that he that he was. And as a consequence, what we saw uh, was that electorate rapidly unraveled and rapidly become uh, dysfunctional. Um, the answer to the question essentially is that mo most of our political class simply do not hold the values that many voters hold. And I've shown this in my own work. If you look at conservatives in Britain, they lean much more strongly to the right on economics and much more strongly to the left on culture than most of the people who have been voting for them over the last five years. And if you want to answer the question of why have mainstream parties been outflanked over the last decade, one of the short answers is that they lost sight of the fact that a lot of people out there simply lean a bit to the left on the economy and a bit to the right on culture, and they want themselves... They want to be represented in the in the political system, and until now, um, they've not been represented. Now, I, I was shocked to discover that Labor have only been in power collectively for around thirty years in the UK. Perhaps you can run us through some of their long-standing issues as you see them, and then answer the question on on everyone's lips, and that is: Are Labor unelectable? Well, the short answer to the question of why Labor has struggled really is 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 that the party has failed to understand how and why politics has been changing, uh, not just in this country, but across uh, much of the West. The left has basically gone through uh, what was first identified in the 1980s as its big, big electoral dilemma. How can you retain support from middle class professionals who tend to live in the cities and the university towns and retain support from blue collar workers who tend to hold much more conservative values on issues to do with migration and identity. 
And over the last 30 years or so, that dilemma has become very acute and many left-wing parties have really struggled to respond to it. It's not been helped by the fact that if you look, for example, at the British Labour Party, its parliamentary intake has been completely taken over by university graduates, often elite graduates from the elite universities, and its party structures have been taken over by uh, radical progressive activists who hold a set of values that are not shared by many traditional Labour voters. They're obsessed with identity politics. They're obsessed with what they see as historic injustices. They want to talk about the legacy of empire. They they believe that Britain is fundamentally racist. They believe that um, British identity is, is, is a source of shame and embarrassment. Uh, these are not normal views. Most people do not hold uh, these views. Um, so the problem facing the Labour Party has really been a, a supply and a demand side problem. On the demand side, it's really lost touch with a large number of voters within its electorate who want to see things that the Labour Party has refused to give them, lower levels of migration, um, a political economy that isn't dependent upon globalisation, which has stoked high rates of inequality, which has weakened communities and weakened families. Um, but it's also really on the supply side failed to give voice to many of those same groups. There have never been fewer uh, working class politicians in the Labour Party. There have never been more politicians in the Labour Party who have only ever worked in politics. So as a as a vessel, um, it's become increasingly hollow and um, preoccupied with serving the interests of the new um, political class. And this isn't a story unique to Britain. I mean, many of my colleagues in academia from Thomas Piketty to Mark Liller have made a similar argument with regard to left-wing parties that they fundamentally lost touch with many of the people who have been voting for them. And if you look at Britain, that problem has been exacerbated by political geography. They've become increasingly dependent upon graduates, uh, upon professionals and minorities, all of whom tend to concentrate in the same kinds of areas. And that in turn has made it harder for Labour to really, really put together a broad um, national uh, coalition of support. Now, there are signs it's beginning potentially to deal with this issue, um, such as being the disillusionment with the Conservative Party ever since the COVID pandemic and its failure to represent the values of its new voters. Um, but I don't see much evidence that actually the Labour Party has fully understood the new dividing lines in politics. And I don't see much evidence, by the way, that social democracy across the West has fully understood um, how politics is changing and why it needs to reconnect with many voters who see the world in a fundamentally different way. Now, for a party that claims to be progressive, they seem very white and very male, Whereas the Tories have had two female prime ministers and now has a prime minister with brown skin. How do the progressives explain that? Well, some progressives explain it by essentially being racist. Uh, so one of the curious peculiarities that we, we've seen in British politics is left-wing progressives berating the country's first prime minister from a minority background for holding the wrong political beliefs, because in their eyes, if you are a member of a minority group, a fixed identity group, 
then you are supposed to hold particular values. Now, uh, stereotyping uh, groups in that way is something uh, my friends on on the left would would usually uh, abhor. But in this case, uh, they've routinely pointed to minority politicians, Rishi Sunak, Suela Braverman, Kemi Badenoch, um, you know, politicians that, by the way, represent the fact that the House of Commons has never been as diverse as it, as it is today. We've never had um, a political cabinet as diverse as a cabinet that we've had since the last election. Um, we've never before had um, minority Britons represented at the very highest levels of British politics. Yet at the same time, all of this has been presented alongside very dreary narratives about um, Britain being institutionally racist and the structures of society being closed off to minorities. Now, listen, that's just not true. I sit on the government social mobility commission. Um, and if you look at the evidence on social mobility in Britain, on, on, on the extent to which people can rise from the bottom of society to the top, the very groups that are now doing the very best on social mobility are minority ethnic groups. This is a remarkable success story, actually, about British society. If you are British Bangladeshi, if you are British Pakistani, if you are um, British Black African, if you are British uh, Caribbean, over the last 20 years, your performance in the education system has been uh, among the, the most impressive. Um, you've become much more um, uh, successful at, at school exams, at entering university, at graduating from university, at going to the very best universities. In fact, the, the, the one group, by the way, that has been consistently left behind in our education system has been the white working class. Um, only children from gypsy and Roma families perform worse than white working class boys within the British education system. Um, that is conveniently ignored or downplayed in many of the narratives about Britain. So I think, you know, my point is the rise of, of politicians within the Conservative Party from a minority background um, is merely a symbol um, of the way in which many of the narratives that we have about Western societies today are actually very inaccurate and very misleading. Uh, and that's also true of race. Uh, all of the evidence in the social sciences, and I work in the social science, in the social sciences, uh, says the same thing. It's very convincing that basically from the 1980s onwards, levels of racial prejudice in Britain have consistently and dramatically declined, that we become a much less racist society and a more welcoming one. Now, that's not the dominant narrative within the institutions because the institutions are disproportionately dominated by left progressives who have a very different view of the world. And that is why I think many voters are rebelling against those institutions, because they're looking at not just politics, but they're looking at the creative industries, the adverts, the marketing, the museums, the galleries, the BBC. And they're seeing a conversation about the country that doesn't reflect the country that they live in. Uh, and this, I think, uh, we need—you know—we need to talk a lot more about this. We need to talk about why the prevailing culture is uh, so disconnected from the uh, worldview and the aspirations of ordinary voters, because I think it does help explain these volatile times that we're living in. Yeah, and we want to get to your book in a bit more detail and and some of the divides uh, more broadly. Just before we leave politics, I have one last uh, uh, question. So, if Keir Starmer does pull off an election win. I'd like to know how you see things playing out because here in Australia, we voted in Labor recently by a sliver, uh, which of course they took as a complete mandate uh, by the people. And um, the PM uh, has sort of sort of told everyone 
prior to that that the, uh, the uh, he sold everyone on this idea of everything pretty much being the same except just without the previous leader so nothing will change and then they got in and the very first thing they did was initiate a referendum a people's vote so this is a this is a big deal we've only had a handful of these uh on what's called an indigenous voice to parliament now you don't have obviously probably don't know the details of all that and it's not really that important which is but basically no one really asked for this thing uh we were sold on this idea of of continuity and now we're being forced to go through this this pretty big deal which is being which is they're pushing it from the government uh the question is basically if you're not racist then you'll vote yes for this this third this voice to indigenous voice to parliament so i'm just interested from the uk perspective if if labor does win because you have written about there being a possible uh, of rishi sunak only having a very narrow path to victory uh uh if if keir starmer wins he could interpret this slim majority as as a mandate and push push in your case maybe push uh through mad gender stuff that we're seeing in scotland or who knows what what do you think well, I was going to reference Scotland because I see some parallels actually to what has been taking place in Scotland, where you have uh, a devolved administration essentially introducing sweeping changes uh, to gender uh, on on a on a pretty slim mandate. Um, so, if you look, for example, at what what is happening there, the proposals to reduce the age at which somebody can legally change their gender to sixteen that that person is no longer going to be required to see any medical professionals before doing so uh, and will only have to live in that uh, new gender for uh, as little as three months um, before changing from a man to a woman or woman to a man. Um, That has been a very contentious issue within British politics, not least because of the fact that it is only supported by about 20% of voters. Now, I do a lot of polling. I spend a lot of my time doing work in surveys. And what I think this represents, and this may speak to some of the issues in Australia, is the simple fact that we now have a group within Western politics that I call radical progressives that represent typically no more than 13 to 18 percent of the country who are very highly educated have typically gone to elite universities, are typically financially secure, usually live in the big cities. Um, Their parents are usually university graduates as well. Um, And they see the world in a fundamentally different way. They are overwhelmingly concerned with um, what they see as the need to uh, save uh, and rescue racial, sexual and gender minorities. Uh, They routinely prioritise the interests of minorities over the majority. They feel less attached to their national identity, which they often see as a source of shame and embarrassment. They are utterly convinced that Western societies are institutionally uh, racist and, again, are a source of embarrassment. Uh, They are much more preoccupied with their achieved identities Uh, Their education identities are particularly important. They see themselves as highly educated, enlightened elites, and they are quickly developing, I would argue, a a group consciousness that is organized around their education identity and increasingly their values. So one of my arguments in the book is that essentially we have a new elite um, that is disproportionately influential within many of the institutions that no longer derives its sense of status from material resources and wealth it now increasingly derives its sense of status from two things. 
its level of education and its values. And other academics have referred to this group as a luxury belief class that they now associate radical progressive beliefs, um, beliefs that often have a very negative impact on other groups in society. Let's talk, for example, about the erosion of uh, boundaries around the traditional family, or let's talk about the erosion of uh, biological sex or, or, or the rise of gender identity theory. And I know you've talked on your podcast with people like Louise um, Perry and Helen Joyce about these issues. Um, but as all of the, the guardrails in society are eroded, uh, it is often working class voters, uh, less well-educated voters, low income voters who are disproportionately more likely to suffer from the erosion of those cultural guardrails. And so what you then see um, I think is 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 a very deep hypocrisy. You know, if you look at many radical progressives in the institutions, they're the most likely to be married and to stay married. They're the most likely to um, work in secure, uh, well-paid, uh, permanent positions. They're the most likely to uh, live in the most prosperous areas of the country in housing markets that have been very buoyant. Um, and th- at the same time, they're the less likely to live by many of the values that they're actually that they're actually preaching. So that hypocrisy, I think, is is now fundamentally central to our politics. So when you see things like you're witnessing in in, in Australia, or what we're witnessing in Scotland, but you know, gender isn't the only issue. We could talk about immigration. Uh, we could talk about the way in which we interpret national history, the way in which we think about national identity, the way in which we think about even our relationship with Europe. Radical progressives have consistently advocated a view of the world that is not shared by many other people. And they have very little interest in compromise and discussion and consensus. They are, by the way, the most likely to prioritize strict uh, speech codes and political correctness over things um, like free speech. So in this way, I think what we've seen is the rise of a group that is really actually challenging the public square in quite a profound way. And unless we speak openly about that that group, which is one of the reasons why I wrote the book, um, I think we're we're not really going to get on top of our political problems. I'm I'm quite interested in this in this age divide and you've you've written about this quite a bit on your Substack. And you know, I, I often say that we're living in an age seg age segregated society where young people often have very little interaction either socially or professionally with with older generations and and vice versa. Um, you know, the, the, there is an alarming divide between older and younger generations, as, as you point out. Zoomers seem to think and act the same way in relation to politics, education and, and cultural values, which is often in opposition to older generations. I, but I, I'm interested to know, are there, are there common values between Zoomers and baby boomers or is there no common ground left at all? And, and, and what does this mean for, for politics more broadly? I think there is some common ground. I think there are issues, for example, that Zoomers, you know, and Boomers uh, have have in have in common. I think if you look at issues like healthcare, if you look at some of the some of the concerns around the environment, and if you look around at things like wanting a a strong growing economy, um, you know, they tend to to share those things. Um, and, and those interests, but but when you turn to the cultural questions that are increasingly um, prominent in our politics and and uh, society, um, they typically hold radically uh, different views. Um, in Britain, we have an age divide culturally and politically 
that we've never seen before. I'll give you an example. If you look at university graduate Zoomers, so I'm talking about people here who were born after 1996, um, who have passed through university, graduated from university, and particularly the younger end of that group, um, you know, 18 to, to 25 year olds, uh, about 75% of those uh, Zuma graduates are voting for left-wing parties now, 75%. We've never come close to seeing anything like that in British political history. Um, that's the first point. And the second point is when you then ask those voters about these cultural questions, about, um, you know, is Britain uh, institutionally racist? Should we be proud or ashamed of our national history? Should we prioritise anti-racism over free speech? Uh, should we uh, sack academics and professors who make us feel uncomfortable on campus? Should we cancel uh, voices uh, that challenge uh, our political beliefs? Uh, on all of those types of items uh, and questions and surveys, we now routinely find that young Zoomers, and by the way, young Zoomer women especially, um, are the most likely to, to voice that political intolerance. And I've been thinking a lot uh, about why this, why this is the case. And I think there are a few things that are at play here. One is that they are the most likely of all generations, really, that we've had to pass through the universities. And I think that's very significant. Uh, I think as you pass through the universities, you are exposed to a worldview and a particular um, ideology that, that is uh, concentrated in higher education. I think a lot of studies support me on that. We've got some really convincing evidence here in Britain from the British cohort study, which shows that. I think secondly, this is a generation that has come of age amid council culture um, and, and has, has only ever lived online. The Zoomers are the first generation in history to have spent their entire lives online. So they've witnessed the Me Too movement, the BLM movement, the George Floyd protests, the cancellations, the sackings, the, the denunciations. To them, this looks entirely normal. Um, and, and I think also they're, they're, they're in today's society, there are a complete lack of role models for, for Zoomers um, who are willing to speak up and point to some of the problems within these debates. Because we have uh, so much self-censorship within our societies now, we have so few people willing to speak out, that it, it, it has been the moderates in society who have been less willing to, to put their heads above the parapet. And so we don't really have the role models for Zoomers uh, that we used to have. And as the institutions have become much more ideologically, um, I would argue, biased, and that's become much more visible to people through social media, um, those voices, those alternative voices have become even even quieter and less prominent. So for my Zuma students, as an example, um, you know, they 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 were born. My first year university students were born in 2004. Um, you know, they by the time they they arrive at university, you know, they haven't really been exposed to many alternative beliefs and viewpoints. Uh, and they're certainly not going to be exposed to many alternative beliefs and viewpoints at universities anymore, because about 80% of academics tend to lean very strongly in one direction. And this is one of the things I genuinely worry a lot about. I think the future leaders of society are already exhibiting attitudes and values that I personally find very 
very challenging and, and quite uncomfortable, actually. Don't we see this sort of playing out uh, in a little diorama with uh, J.K. Rowling and uh, the three beneficiaries of her work, those three woke young actors who all hung her out to dry? You know what I mean? We, we see that, that divide uh, quite clearly right, right there. Someone who, who spoke her mind and then uh, if you saw the, you may not have followed very closely the, the responses of those three actors, but they all in their own way uh, from severe to uh, pretty not, uh, not, as, not as harsh were all fairly cowardly. And uh, I, I just wonder if, we're, if that's a, an example of, of what you're speaking of. Well, one of the arguments that I, I draw on in the book is is that we're not actually talking about a political ideology here. We're talking about a new religion. You know, that there is a view that, that wokeism, that radical progressivism, liberal authoritarianism, whatever you want to call it, whatever your chosen name, this is not a political ideology in a classic sense, right? This displays all the hallmarks of a, of a new religion. Uh, it punishes outsiders, critics, uh, non-conformists who are seen to violate the new sacred values of equality and diversity and anti-racism. It, it, it has its own version of original sin, right? White privilege, white guilt. Uh, these are all uh, you know, modern incarnations of that. It is profoundly utopian, right? It, it, it sort of wants to build this new, uh, this new utopia um, uh, and and it and it is um, based on um, claims that are deeply hostile uh, towards objective empirical evidence. It has no interest in the evidence. There's some things that I've just talked to you about: social mobility and and the fact that many minority ethnic groups are doing remarkably well, better than many um, uh, white um, Brits, for example, in many areas of life: education, health, and so on, the economy. Um, that is that's blasphemous in the new creed of of wokeism. That is uh, that is grounds for cancellation because in their minds, you know, objective scientific um, uh, evidence um, has been constructed by powerful um, white elites to justify and legitimise the, the 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 existing power structures. So I I have gone on a political journey where you know I used to be a, a, a very sort of you know I used to be a, a pretty sort of moderate person that would place themselves on the center left. I've gone on a journey where I've become increasingly disillusioned with what has happened to left politics, not just in Britain, but across across the world. And I've been influenced by many of the academic and intellectual arguments about this. I've been won over by people like uh, uh, Francis Fukuyama and others who have said, look, we have to really understand that what we are dealing with is not a liberal ideology. Radical progressivism is illiberal. It is fundamentally undermining the central pillars of liberal society on a number uh, of, of in a number of areas. It is dismissive and hostile towards the values of the Enlightenment. It has absolutely no interest in individual rights because everybody is is merely a member of a fixed identity group, and you are defined by those fixed racial, gender, sexual um, characteristics. And it has absolutely no interest in maintaining and preserving the bonds of belonging that have held um, groups together in increasingly diverse and, and complex societies. It is um, negative, if not cynical, towards things like national identity, a shared sense of national history, a shared sense of national culture, and a shared uh, set of traditions and customs. And 
on, on for all of those reasons, I have increasingly come to the view that, and this is as somebody who used to spend a lot of time writing about right-wing populism, I've increasingly come to the view that actually radical progressivism is now posing as much of a threat to our society as the populist right. And that is not a view that is held by many academics and has certainly made my life much more challenging than it would otherwise have been. But I think the evidence on this now is overwhelming. Uh, and this problem will only become much sharper in the years ahead. We've had this question for uh, on our lips for about five questions, but we got carried away. Yeah, and you've already teased us with the book. In, in, we've come at it from several uh, uh, angles, but perhaps a more formal uh, introduction to uh, values, voice, and virtue. Anything you haven't already launched into already? But what can our what can our audience? Uh, expect from from I'm very disappointed that this book isn't already out by the way I was de- desperate to, to read this book um, and I still am so uh, what 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 uh, what does that audience need to know about about uh, values voice and virtue well essentially this book is explaining the last 50 years not just in British politics but I think will speak to many of the debates that are happening in in many other Western democracies around the world including Australia and the central question essentially is you know how have we got to this point where so many voters, are so visibly disillusioned and disgruntled with the established political class. And, and the book really goes, goes through the last half century, drawing on a lot, a lot of evidence uh, to make the case for why actually the drivers of politics today um, are very different from what they were in the 20th century, that we've entered a new era really in, uh, in, uh, in Western liberal democracy. Uh, and that there is ample potential for new political parties and new political challenges if they connect with these new uh, divides. But there's also a way back for the mainstream parties if they are willing to change and adapt uh, to these concerns. And if you look, for example, at some of the parties that have done very well, you can look at people like Boris Johnson in 2019, but you can also look at people who have done terribly at connecting with these concerns. Liz Truss, for example. The reason Liz Truss collapsed in Britain is because she offered people a model of hyper-globalization, a model of London-based financial services and uh, Davos on Thames that many voters had spent 20 years rejecting. And uh, you can look around the world at parties that have been pretty successful at recognizing how the foundations of politics are changing. Ron DeSantis is, an, is a good example of a politician in America who understands, I think, both the economic and the cultural reality of today's uh, of today's politics. Um, you can look at somebody um, like Jeremy Corbyn, who completely failed to understand uh, the reality of today's politics, somebody who set the stage for the collapse of the, the Red Wall in northern working class England. So hopefully the book really is, is written to speak to these global debates about how parties can put together, you know, these broad uh, coalitions of voters, but also um, where the established parties have gone wrong in just cultivating and generating a considerable amount of disquiet and disillusionment among voters who, who, as I say, they don't feel like their values are reflected in politics anymore. They don't feel like they can influence the national conversation. They don't feel like they are treated with the same uh, degree of respect and status as others in society. And one of the good things I think that, that has happened over the last decade, and you guys know more about this than I do, but maybe that's why our media landscape has become much more diverse and fragmented, because I think voters have have basically demanded it. I think the rise of 
podcasts, I think the rise of Substack, I think the rise of a, a new generation of independent intellectual thinkers and writers has basically been a response to the failure of legacy media, of mainstream media, to adapt and recognize and respect the values of not just a minority, but often a majority on a lot of these questions to do with identity, culture, and belonging, whether to do with you know sex and gender, national identity, Europe, whatever. And I think that uh, that has been one of the silver linings in all this, which is that we've seen the media landscape basically be forced to open up to, to, to challenges and disruptors. And I think a lot of that, as we see with Elon Musk, a lot of that will continue until we can get back to having a public square that is actually representative of the wider public. Actually, I can just quickly confirm that, uh, Matthew. The reason we started this podcast is because you should be on our national broadcaster talking about all this, by the way. Like the only reason we're doing, we're talking to all of our wonderful guests is because you should already be taking up an hour on talking to our best and best and brightest, but they will not talk to any of the people that are talking about this stuff. So I just wanted to let you know that. Well, I'll give you another example. Let's just go back briefly to the the 2016 revolts in, in America and Britain. An obvious response to that moment in mainstream media would have been to put prominent pro-Brexit, pro-Trump writers in mainstream media and having a serious debate uh, and a serious conversation with those voters about why they felt the settlement wasn't working and what they wanted to change. In Britain, none of that, none of that happened. We had five years of essentially the, the sort of new elite putting their fingers in their ears and trying to do whatever they could to stop that moment from from happening. And that culminated in Boris Johnson's election victory. And again, they hated that. So we had years and years of you know, complaining and doing everything we could under the sun as a society to undermine all of that. So I think had actually people responded differently, had we thought much more imaginatively about how we could ensure our television programs, our radio shows, our museums, our galleries, our media, the national conversation can better represent all groups in the country, I think actually there would have been a moment to genuinely deal with the grievances that have been driving you know, populism and outsider politics. We've not seen that. So what, what, what has happened is, well, okay, the midterms didn't go as well as Trump hoped, but they still did pretty well. They took back the Senate, you look at Italy, Georgia Maloney, she comes from nowhere, she wins the election. You look at France, Marine Le Pen gets a record high share of the vote. You look at Sweden, populist breakthrough. You look at Portugal, you look at Spain, you look at Brazil, okay, Bolsonaro lost, but not by much. And I think if you just look, set back and look at the longer direction of travel here, the longer trajectory, I don't really see any evidence at all, actually, that the what we might call the liberal mainstream is actually effectively responding to any of these concerns. I think if anything, as we can see in Scotland, or as we can see in the Democrats in the US, I think if anything, the progressives appear now more adamant than they were before 2016 to push through a particular view of the world that reflects their new religion, but doesn't really appeal or resonate with a, with a wider uh, majority in the country. And I think voters are actually now beginning to realise that. We wanted to uh, get your take on uh, something you, you wrote recently 
about council culture to set it up. Uh, Lady Hussey, the 83-year-old lady-in-waiting for the Queen, was at a function and asked by a black woman and head of a charity where she's really from. Uh, she asked several times and after the incident was reported, uh, she lost her title and her reputation uh, in an instant. Uh, you commissioned some interesting polling data around this topic. Uh, would you mind running us through uh, what you found? Yeah, this was a really big scandal in in, in British society. I mean, this it's, it's you know this is not a normal cancellation. Uh, Lady Lady Susan Hussey served the Queen uh, for uh, seventy years, uh, and and then um, served uh, King Charles III. Um, so she was at the centre of the royal court, and um, she attended a reception one day. There was a lady there. Uh, who uh, worked for a charity, a sort of charity that, that helps women who are abused, um, and uh, alleged that Lady Susan Hussey had said repeatedly, where are you from? Um, and she interpreted that question as being racist. And um, within the matter of hours, Buckingham Palace had issued a statement apologising. Um, Prince William, Lady Hussey's godson, um, denounced what she'd said, and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had, and I quote, uh, declared the work of anti-racism is never done. Um, and so by the end of that day, her entire life had been destroyed. A lady, Susan Hussey, is 83 years of age. She was born in 1939 in a completely different era. Uh, nobody waited to hear what she had to say. Nobody uh, could even just hold fire and see if she wanted to apologise or put her comments in context. Um, and this is one of the things that really um, worries me the most about cancel culture is its complete lack of interest in forgiveness. Nobody in our society has any serious interest in um, allowing some narrative of forgiveness. And to me, this is one of the most depressing aspects of of our society so i was curious i said to i said to my colleague why don't we just find out what people think should lady susan hussey be allowed to return to work given that she's apologized publicly and she's apologized to the person that was offended by her questions and um what you tend to find again is only a minority of people favor her continued cancellation only about 24 percent of the country most people either say she should return to work which is a view held by 42%, or they don't really hold a view either way, which in my mind at least is probably because people are scared of putting their heads above the parapet given the climate that we're now in. But either way, only a minority thinks she should continue to be cancelled. Now, there are some fascinating generational divides here, which we've already alluded to. Zoomers are the only group, Gen Z are the only group that break, um, that break in favour of her continued cancellation. Every other group says we should let her back uh, to, to let her return to work. Why does this matter, right? Why does this matter to Australia? I think these cases are all symbolic of cancel culture. And I think when you actually ask people what they think should happen in these cases, often you will find much larger numbers say we need to create and carve out a pathway back into the public square and public life for the cancelled. That if they if 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 they have uh, violated a social norm, if they've stepped over the line, if they've apologised, and they sincerely apologised if, if an apology is required, most people want to find a way back for for individuals who lose everything 
uh, in the matter of, of hours. They lose their job, they lose their reputation, they lose esteem, they lose often their family. We've had individuals in North America who have killed themselves. Um, and I think this is one of the most pressing questions actually facing society. We cannot carry on cancelling people um, in the way that we're doing. And, and that's why I commissioned commission that polling um, to see if we can begin to maybe uh, lead the, the conversation to a place where we're more interested in forgiveness and reconciliation uh, than we are in cancellation. But why are these people seemingly getting away with um, such bloodthirsty uh, behavior? It's sort of like it goes against basic parental advice. Like you think of what you would tell your child uh, if if this was going on, you'd say, oh, hang on. Like, or, or in a fight, for instance, like, you know, you'd say he's had enough. You know, like stop, like like just like this. I don't understand why these people are getting away with something that that on a human level is 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 um plainly so awful. Well, I think there are a number of things going on. I think one is that culturally we've entered a cul-de-sac whereby um, acquiring your status as a victim in some way uh, has become a source of status and prestige, and so. Um, as a consequence, in order to signal your virtue in society today, being seen to call out and effectively destroy the lives of people who are seen to violate those social norms has itself become a way of acquiring social status. And you only need to spend five, 10 minutes on Twitter to see this play out, especially members of the elite spend most of their time, much of their time calling out perceived transgressions uh, of these new sacred values of of expressing their allegiance or their allyship to racial, sexual, gender minorities, and attacking anybody who is seen to undermine or violate those sacred values. And so, in a sense, it's become a new status game. That's part of it. It's also become, I think, a new religion for people, as I've mentioned. But it's also been fueled uh, very clearly by the rise of, of of social media and by the way in which we are now all basically engaged in this um, in this very uh, un, unseemly sort of offence archaeology, looking for reasons to stain and discredit our political uh, and, uh, opponents. Um, and that's, that's very unfortunate. I mean, if you look at the data on who dominates social media, again, it's very clear. It tends to be liberal left progressives. Not only are they more dominant of platforms like Twitter and um uh, and Facebook, they're the most likely to tweet regularly, and they're the most likely to share their political views online. In fact, we had a study in Britain which found that on average, only 18% of people uh, regularly shared their political views on social media, but for radical progressives, it was 55%. You know, they are literally out there every day, just churning out content and, and, and critiquing and challenging and, and attacking their perceived opponents. And that's... Um, that's an unfortunate um, place to be. Uh, so Problematizing. I think, yeah, I mean, I think it is, I think, I think also, to be frank, a lot of parents are scared. A lot of parents are scared to enter into these debates over gender, history, identity, because they don't always feel equipped to be able to do that and to be able to, you know, essentially challenge or confront what their children are being taught at school or at university. And I think that is also part of what we're seeing as well, that the public institutions have clearly become more overtly political in how they teach and what they teach. 
Um, and that too, I think, is part of 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 the of the challenge today um, that we need to think we need to think very seriously about. We just have a couple of uh, short questions for you uh, on our downward descent. You've made a point in recent times that I don't think it's made enough of, and that is uh, you've challenged this label and the very notion that we uh, uh, that we are in a culture war. Uh, how should we be thinking about these issues instead of this this term culture war? Well, I think uh, gender critical uh, people, conservatives, classical liberals, I think are shooting themselves in in their own foot when they use the language of culture wars. So um, when you when you actually look at the issues that we're talking about, when you look at the rights of women, um, the rights of children, what we teach children, um, when you look at our history how we think about our history. And when you look at identity, when we think about who we are as a country, as a people, um, these are not culture war questions. These are foundational to our civilization. They are the basic uh, fabric uh, of who we are. And the, um, the, 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 the issue I have with, with radical progressives is, is the tendency to take all of that and to stigmatize it as being about stoking a culture war uh, when these questions are actually foundational to who we are. So when I debate and discuss these issues with colleagues who are critical of gender identity theory or who are uh, conservative or, or classic liberals, um, you know, my, my line is always don't, don't adopt the rhetoric and the language of your opponents. These are, these are not cultural questions. Um, they are anything but. And actually, when you poll these questions, as I do regularly, you find that they're not fringe questions. These are majority views. And because that public square has been vacated, because people are no longer really in the institutions, the viewpoint diversity that used to be there is no longer there. You know, this language has now gone mainstream and people are now... Uh, effectively told that there will be social and and personal consequences for wading into these issues, um, and that's why I think it's it's it should be pushed back on. Now, what what is your current advice for our listeners, uh, along with buying a new book, of course, who who are experiencing this sort of stuff at work or perhaps at their child's daycare or at school? What what strategies can you offer to our listeners to to, to push back on some of this stuff? I think one of the biggest challenges facing our societies is to give moderates a sense of intellectual confidence, to give moderates a sense of confidence and an ability to stand up and speak out. Because unless moderates do that, um, we're not going to see any change and we're only going to see this accelerate. Uh, So we need to build an ecosystem that allows um, people to get that intellectual confidence. They're not going to get it, I don't think, from our mainstream conversation. So we need an ecosystem that is making these alternative ideas available to people. I think we also need to um, uh, network as effectively as other as as other groups do in society, and ensure that people are brought under the umbrella of uh, of those intellectual um, networks. Uh, and we need to be able to challenge um, uh, challenge uh, radical positions when they appear. Um, if you take, for example, what's happening in Scotland, uh, one of the consequences of that has been the emergence of a very vibrant, very active and very vocal network that is organized around sex based women's rights, um, which has been a good thing to see, I think, for the for the 
state of our debate. Um, if you look at the universities, one of the things I've been involved with is a group that has brought forward legislation to um, defend academic freedom in universities. Um, that network, again, is very important. If you look at America, there are new universities, independent universities, people pushing back. Um, I think ensuring that all of those people are connected and aware of one another and that people in the wider sphere are aware of those initiatives is is really important because parents don't feel that they can really talk to their school about these issues because they're not entirely sure what I don't know gender identity theory is what critical race theory is they're not they don't really know what these things are and so they don't really have that sense of intellectual confidence um and so the ecosystem point to me is is probably the most important uh, that comes before before anything else well uh matthew looks like we're out of time uh, just some quick plugs how can people find you online uh they can find me on twitter at goodwin mj um and my Substack is uh available through through twitter or through google well thank you thank you so much matthew you've been so gracious with your time and i had a bunch of questions on harry and megan that i would have loved to have got to <laughs> got uh, got your take on so uh, perhaps you can come back in the future and we can we can talk about them i i will i will go out of my way to not talk about harry and megan but uh, <laughs> yeah. i mean if you ever want an example of a brand that has headed south at 150 miles an hour there's harry and megan because i've been polling on that question for the last year and they are now almost as unpopular as another member of the royal family namely prince andrew so that is mm. that is how quickly their brand has fallen and it will not recover i mean it will not recover but let's have that conversation at a later date thanks very much matthew Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.